episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me as always is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. How are you today, Chris? I'm doing very well, Jody. Doing much better this week. How are you? I'm alive and not unwell. Awesome. Yes. That's what I like to hear. You had an incident. Should we just dive right in here? An incident? I don't know if I would call it an incident, but I did end up taking some remixes that I've been waiting to finalize with a stamp of approval, Hmm. dug them back out yesterday and started listening to them so I could make some notes. And I realized that on a couple of the songs that I had, there was too much reverb. Uh Uh-oh. And it kind of bummed me out. So (laughs) I realized it's like, maybe I was working too long on that particular day when I worked on that particular song kind of thing and realized, okay, good thing it hasn't been turned back in and good thing it hasn't been released yet because it's still fixable. (laughs) I'm going to go back and make tweaks, 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 tweaks. Yeah, that can be a hard thing, isn't it? You know, dealing with reverb, I think. Let's say that you had a really late mix session or something and you're doing that. It's like, oh my God, that sounds awesome. That's great. And then come back with fresh ears the next day and go like, what the heck was going on there? You know, <laughs> Where did my brain go when I did that maneuver? Yeah. Ear fatigue and all that stuff, right? Yes. So, so we thought we'd talk reverb today because reverb is one of those instant effects that we use on just about every mix, just about all of us. It can make something sound really, really sweet, but it can also make something sound really, really annoying. So (laughs) how to to kind of navigate that. And thus is the difficulty of actually using reverb either tastefully and or appropriately. That's the question, right? What's appropriate and what what is tasteful? What does it mean to have that? What does it mean to have it? appropriate and tastefully. What's your thought on that? The first thing that I noticed on a couple of the songs is that I may have used the wrong kind of reverb. Meaning? I chose the wrong reverb in terms uh, the of the reverb usage. type. Yeah. 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 The reverb type. And we, right. we did do an episode on different reverb types, but I chose the wrong type of reverb. Yeah. And I believe I lost my focus on where certain things would go in a couple of these songs in terms of the mixed balance between the lead vocal and backing vocals. The particular project has some lead vocals that have answer vocals from the backgrounds that need to be equally as important as the lead vocal. And with the way that I ended up using the reverb on it, it was inappropriate because it set the background vocal answers to be too far <laughs> into the too background far back. and maybe a little bit too washed out. Luckily, I have the option to go back and rethink that thought yeah. process that I apparently had when I did it in the first place a week or so ago. <laughs> yeah. So you're lucky there that these tracks were not printed with yes. a reverb. Correct. Right? It, it was, they're still sitting there. That's fortunate. I mean, that, that can easily happen, I think, with vocals. Especially, I think, are susceptible to this because singers can sometimes be a little bit insecure about their voices. Mm-hmm. And a good blanket for that to make them feel better seems to be like, I want more reverb. Wrap them you up know? in reverb, baby. Yeah. And then you wonder, why does this not translate into a mix, right? <laughs> it's easy to overshoot that. And also, you know, I'm thinking here when you're talking about those background vocals who sound like they would be like a call and response type of thing with, yes. with a lead vocal. Am I right in that? Mm-hmm. 
where a common thing could be just, oh, it's just background vocals. So they're going to sound huge, and I want it to sound like a Mutt Lang production, right? And instead of having everything sung 84 million times is to, you know, do a reverb thing. And again, it's not the best solution a lot of times. Yeah, I'm going to attribute the fact that where this happened in a few of the songs is more ear fatigue than anything because I was pushing myself to get something done to give myself a little time for the holidays and everything to relax. But now I've realized that I probably should have taken the extra little time to take a break before I did that mix kind of thing. So where I found this kind of inappropriate in terms of the correct type of reverb on a couple of these songs is, is that the length, the size of the reverb is too big. And it Mm -hmm. sets the vocals back a little too far. And that's not just the size of the reverb. That's a combination of a couple of things. The first thing that I now need to go do is choose a different reverb, most likely, and not use such a large plate or such a large room hall. I have to go back into the mix and figure out exactly what it was that I put on a particular vocal part in order to do that. Yeah. But that's a big thing that people need to think about as mix engineers to think about, am I doing this right at this point in time? Is this serving the song correctly? And obviously I fell down on that <laughs> and I have to yeah. pick myself back up on this particular part of the a couple of these songs. Well, but we've all done that. I mean, as I were paying so close attention to all these little details in the mix, and it can actually be that are you just, for whatever reason, you're ignoring the reverb as you're listening? Yeah. And it's like, oh, that, that's fine. And then you go, wait, that completely loses the intimacy or whatever because it's the this huge plate going on and it's, it's just not appropriate. Yeah. And go in ahead. that regard, with the way some of the vocals have come out, it's incorrect length on the reverb. Essentially, what I didn't do is I didn't pick the right reverb on the start for a few of these vocals. The second thing that I'm noticing in a couple of these songs is that I didn't correctly get the tail right. So not only do I need to choose the new reverb, I need to get the tail right, calculating it out and thinking about it, come back at it with fresh ears, which is exactly what I've done, taking notes on everything that I need to go back and kind of make a tweak on. Correct length of the reverb is also something you need to think about when it comes to your choice of the reverb. Yeah, And by that, it's not just the tail, it's how the entire sound is going to work going into that tail. And if you want to figure out whether or not it's going to tail off, so to speak, underneath other vocals or other instruments coming in, you have to think about that time. How long should it tail off? Are you supposed to be sitting in a cavern? Or are you <laughs> yeah. at the mouth of a cave and you're listening down the length of the cave, but you were thinking about the person being right in front of the cave kind of thing. So all of these things come up as options that you have to think about in how you're going to paint with the reverb that you plan on using. If we want to make a correlation to another episode that we recently did, we could refer to the way you would calculate out your time for your reverb tail based on how you would calculate for delay repeats. Absolutely. Most reverbs, I dare say, at least at this point, do not sync the tail of the reverb to tempo, right? So that that will still be in milliseconds or even seconds, right? Sure. You can figure that out if you know that formula for figuring out the delay times, how to calculate an appropriate time where you might want it to ring out for 
a bar or two beats or whatever is appropriate, right? How to set that delay time mm-hmm. according to the BPM of your track. That is an important part of it as well. Like you mentioned, not just choosing the correct type of reverb, but setting the length so that it has the time to possibly tail off before the next vocal line or if it's on a snare hit that the reverb is not ringing out when the next hit comes in, that kind of thing. And you're left with this giant soup of just cavernous <laughs> echoes, you know? Well, and you might want that depending on the song and where you're putting it in the song. But just as an aside to what you just mentioned there, if we make the tail too long on a reverb, it has the ability to smear the sound. Yeah. Is a good way of saying it. And if the tail is too short, it might feel like, wait a minute, what kind of space is this instrument in? Yeah. Is it in a realistic space? Is it supposed to be realistic? Is it not supposed to be realistic? These are choices you need to make. And the tail length definitely coincides with how that plays out. Whether you want it to be smooth or you want it to get out of the way. That brings up another question, I think, that we need to ask ourselves as we're choosing our reverbs is, what is the goal? Why are we using the reverb? What are we trying to do here? Mm-hmm. One thing that is really, really effective is to just, you know, we're placing the instrument or the source in a certain space. And when I say a certain space, I mean, we're just giving it some ambience, a small room or anything like that, that can just kind of bring it to life just a little bit, but it's not a huge effect. Just adding a little bit of a room or very short sort of like wooden room type of a thing to the sound can make it sound a little bit more natural. Let's say in the case of a a guitar, when we're playing that and if we got a mic right up on the grill, it's going to be very, very dry and People often say, that, oh, it doesn't sound like I'm in the room. Well, it's because it's not. It's a ride up against the grill. So adding a little bit of a short reverb to that, just a smear can help it just sound a little bit more natural. And that goes for all the other tracks in your, in your mix as well. Unless you're going for a huge, massive spatial glacier type of a, of a reverb track, right? Universal the- black hole. <laughs> yeah. Love Black Hole, even tied big thumbs up there. Yeah. But that's a reverb that is clearly not appropriate for everything in your track. That is, least in my opinion, and I'm sure yours, and probably even tides as well, that's a very much a special effect type of reverb, mm-hmm. right? For a certain amount, for a certain type of track. Choosing the right type as well, along with, with the tails goes a long way. So with that, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. All right, we're back. Our next little step into the reverb foyer is the use of pre-delay. How would you go about using pre-delay? Well, I think of pre-delay in the sense that it can create more intimacy by introducing some. If we are using reverb that is fairly prominent. Let's say on the lead vocal, if it's appropriate, it might be that that hall reverb or a plate that you mentioned before. Mm-hmm. If that initial reaction of the um, the early reflections are coming at you right, where immediately, essentially, it can smear the vocal. So introducing 
a pre-delay for the reverb allows you to hear the source first before you start hearing the reverb. So that can add some intimacy to that. If you're not looking for that intimacy, of course, you know, you can just leave it out. But I find that introducing some pre-delay into the reverb, it allows more clarity, at least it does for me in my mix. So I, I use that pretty much all the time. Any right. kind of, and sometimes it's much as like 150 milliseconds, you know, if, it, if it's appropriate. That, that's kind of drastic, but sometimes that's appropriate to me. I think it pre-delays similarly in that it gives that part that you're putting the reverb on and the way you're setting the pre-delay the possibility of getting the intimacy by delaying when the reverb's actually going to start. And the right. longer that delay is before the reverb actually starts doing its thing the more intimate it's going to feel upon the source. And then the shorter or the lack thereof any pre-delay moves the source of your reverberation further away from you to kind of give it a feel of like it's not the center of attention, so to speak. Yeah, it's not up front and in your face type of thing, definitely. And so. I tend to calculate that out more often than not. Like I'll figure yeah, out what the you BPM do. is and then I will figure out from a chart like this BPM tells me I need to have this pre-delay of this to get it kind of to feel rhythmically in line with what's going on. And you tend to go for, I'm sure that changes a little bit on the tempo of the song, but do you go 32nd, do you go maybe as far as like a 16th note? type of thing? Or, or where do you usually set that? More often than not, I'm going roughly around a 32nd note. Yeah. Sometimes I go a 128th. Sometimes I go the 16th. I think the furthest I've ever gone is an eighth note, but that's pretty drastic. And a lot yeah. of reverbs, especially the ones that are emulation type reverbs, have a harder time doing pre-delays of that long. So sometimes you have to set them behind a delay. Yeah. <laughs> to set the I delay find, and then you don't set any delay on the reverb, but you're using an actual delay to delay the sound. I find that if I'm not careful, if I use too long of the pre-delay into the reverb, it starts sounding too unnatural for me. Well, it definitely you, you, is going to sound unnatural if you wait like an eighth note. There's no doubt about that. Right. But, but there's a part of introducing clarity to the source and then it's just weird. You know, <laughs> if it's like too long, it's like, oh, that, that, because then I think what ends up happening to my ear, at least, is that the, the reverb starts sounding unnatural as opposed to just being part of the sound source. It, it, it becomes too much of a dramatic effect. Sure. And it sounds too synthetic, for want of a better word. Well, in the case of like an eighth note, it's more or less like pretending that you're in the Grand Canyon. And you go yeah. to say something, and of course, the Grand Canyon being so gigantic, it takes a moment before you start to hear all the echoes that happen. Yeah. That's where I was coming at when I did that extremely long one that was like an eighth note kind of thing. But it's very, very rare that I do that. To take a little bit of a step back here, when it comes to the reverb tales, I know in past episodes, we've talked about the most extreme examples we've ever done. Mm -hmm. But where do you tend to fall when it comes to the, the tail length or the length of the reverb, do you have sort of like a go-to mindset that you tend to do, or is it just strictly based on the song? It's definitely based upon the song and more often than not on the tempo. 
and it actually coincides with how I'm going to paint that reverb into the situation when it's being used. Is that a good way of saying it? Yeah, I think so, because it, it depends on also obviously of the usage in the song. If it's on, let's say, a vocal thrill, where it's just that one line that you want to just echo off in the distance, right? You, you're obviously going to use a different tail on that than you would on perhaps the lead vocal itself. Yes, as part of the really mind-bending methodology to how I tend to do vocals, which is where I stack multiple things together to create a particular sound. Sometimes I'll stack multiple reverbs together. And in correlation with that, and what I meant by my previous statement, has to do not only with the tail length, but how I'm actually EQing the reverb yeah, to sculpt it into the situation. Absolutely. What, what so, do you tend to do with EQ there? I mean, Depending on the part, and let's say that I'm using a stacked combination of reverbs. I will tend to use a short reverb for initial things. And then I will stack that with a longer tail reverb to give a different sense to the space. And with the way the two are working, the longer one's going to get a lot more high pass filtration on it so that it's not muddying up the situation over time and becomes more glassy mm -hmm. as air around the particular part for the long tail, if I'm using a long tail reverb for that. And the reason you're, you're doing that then is presumably just to, to not muddy up and have too much information in the low end there that would just Correct. make it. And if it you know. starts to be too glassy, like it's getting to a point where it's so bright that it's overstepping its bounds and getting in the way, then I have to use a low pass filter to taper off the top end a little bit. How Sometimes extreme you want do you that usually space, go? But, hmm? Yeah, how extreme do you usually go with uh, the cutoff there? I mean, how low do you, do you tend to cut? I mean, I know it's program dependent, but... I think the lowest I've taken something is somewhere around the 2K mark. And that's pretty yeah. low. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For a reverb. Right. No, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you because... It, Again, obviously, like we talked in the delay thing, but I tend to be pretty judicious with EQ on my return, on the reverb returns. Mm -hmm. I always take out low end, and more often than not, I will take off some high end too, just because it can just be too drastic. And I find that for me, it's easier to make the reverbs sit better in the mix and have the intended purpose if I use some EQ on it. And it's not like I'm going in and using a lot of parametric. It's generally just filtering. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, oh, I'm going to boost here at, at 1.5. It's not that. It, it's rolling off sometimes, you know, up to 200, 250, maybe even more sometimes. Just that will clear up a lot. And then the same thing on the high end, what I would go anything on, on a good day. It's like there's nothing above like 9K that needs to be on the reverb. I don't think so. <laughs> and then everything else is just kind of the taste, right? Well, and maybe this has more to do with whether or not you're using a Mog EQ to really amplify the air of a situation using their Airband EQ kind of thing. Well, I do use the Airband a lot on 
primarily vocals, but it's also one of those things that I tend to do on the mix as a whole. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I have that on my two bus, not the Mog EQ, but I'm using the, sure. the Air EQ from, from Slate. Same idea that when you just a little bit of just kissing the top end of that, just a little peck and just kind of boosting it a little <laughs> bit can, you know, not to get off track here, but the air band EQ type of thing or any EQ that does a similar thing is very similar to the reverb because at one point it can sound really, really sweet and it's really easy to overcook that. Oh, yes, know? it is, yeah. So it's like, oh, this sounds great. And then, you know, you get the ear break and you come back and you go, what was I thinking? What the hell, you know? Which and relates then, back to the notes that I just took on a couple of these songs. It may very well be that I was fried out and didn't realize where I was using the reverb in the situation. Oh, totally. Yeah, the, taking the break, especially if you've been, you know, you've been mixing for 12 or 13 hours, you know, it's very easy to, to lose perception or perspective, <laughs> or one of those P words, yeah. Yes. yeah. So EQ and stuff is a great way to kind of do this as well. But when we're talking longer types of reverbs, are you generally, do you, do you tend to grab a plate, a hall, or do you just sometimes just go for like a larger room? More often than not, it's a plate or a hall with yeah. the longer ones. Usually my shorter ones are rooms. More mm -hmm. slapback type reverbs. Yeah. yeah you use thing. more slapback than I do. I usually don't, but. To me, it gives a sense of space sort of like a delay without being the delay. Yeah. And it's a bit more smeary than a delay. So you get a sense that you're in some sort of room without being in the room, so to speak. So yeah, right. I tend to use that a fair amount. I, I'm a big fan of, in the same way, I have a couple of IRs and things that are some 480 type of reverbs or convolutions from there that are just small wooden rooms that basically go on most things. Obviously mm -hmm. not not bass and things like that, but to just place it in that space, yeah. And for those that aren't aware, the 480 comes from an old lexicon reverb yeah. unit, the 480L. That's just how cool I am, I just say. Yeah. <laughs> just call it the 480 and let it go. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, I think we kind of covered a lot of that, what, what you tend to use and things. But is there anything, while we're talking about reverbs here and we're talking about a little bit more application than just a general overview, what are some things that you never sort of like hard line put reverb on? Is there such a thing? Bass. Yeah, same I'd way. I probably put reverb on bass maybe five times in my life. <laughs> yeah. Not, and even then it's probably not much. It is something that rarely, if ever, gets reverb for me. Yeah. No, I'm the same way because it it never helps anything. It never really improves anything with bass to put it in reverb. And it just that uh, it just has a smearing effect. It's hard enough to get bass to sit properly mm -hmm. without having to deal with reverb uh, on the bass. So yeah, I, I'm the same way. And I would possibly go with a very similar thing, but on if it's like bass synths and things like that, any yep. sort of like low-end material, unless it's part of the room mic. Obviously, if I'm treating drums, the kick never really gets anything because I want that sort of bone dry and hit me in the chest type of thing. Sure. And another thing that you have to be aware of as you're working with reverb is, is there a current trend? And Oh, yeah. That's a little bit more of a difficult answer today than it used to be 
decades ago. I say that by meaning that the 80s are kind of akin to having a certain sound that was awash in reverb. And then come along the 90s and all of a sudden it was an immediate backlash of being pretty much bone dry. (laughs) Yeah. So it helps to be aware of what you're doing with your reverb is, are you doing something that's current? If so, what is the current use of reverb and how does it work? Are you trying to recreate an era? And if so, are you using the types of reverbs that they used from that era in the same way that they use those reverbs? That helps to determine the way you're going to use reverbs and what reverbs you might even use. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we see there's a lot of like synth wave stuff going on right now as of this taping where it's very much a tip of a hat to the 80s and that kind of sound. And then you have to deal with that and make appropriate decisions for that. Mm -hmm. I think with this... It can be very easy to be on topic or on point when you're doing something sort of stylistically, but you can also paint yourself in a corner a little bit if you're applying that sound because it you have to be aware that it can make your tracks be very sort of time-stamped and a little bit dated after a while if we're too extreme and too liberal with certain effects, whether that's keeping everything really dry or really wet. So I think finding that balance or at least have a good understanding of what it is that you're attempting to do as opposed to not necessarily a style but just what's really appropriate for that track is probably a good way to go Mm -hmm. in any situation i agree what's your favorite reverb at this point i love verb suite from the sleep bundle Mm -hmm. and the aforementioned 480 IRs get a lot of use in there. And there has a lot of flexibility in that. It's not just like using an IR. You can sculpt the EQ. You can add pre-delay. You can obviously play with the length of the tail. So as of today, yeah, Herb Street Classics (laughs) is probably my favorite. Uh, What about you? For vocals, I'm going to go with the 224, which is also by Lexicon. It is the precursor to the 480. The 224 is my generally my vocal go-to. Mm-hmm. For instruments, depending on the instrumentation, I'm either using Neoverb or the Eventide. I think it's called the SP. Eventide has a recreation of somebody's room that allows you to choose between one to three mics and where you put those mics in that room. Wow, that's cool. It's really badass. And I tend to use that one a lot on instruments because it gives you a really good sense of space without being ridiculous on the actual vibe of like an effect reverb. It's more of a good space reverb to put you in a room situation. That's cool. You have to show me that one later. Yeah. yeah that, that sounds really intriguing. We'll do That's that. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then nice. with that, let's roll on to our Friday finds. Chris, what have you got for us this week? Well, speaking of eras and being placed at a certain point in time, mm-hmm. my find this week is 
a sample instrument called Dark Era. Oh. We're going back, I don't know. That's so years unlike so. you for the holidays. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> now, this is an instrument by Best Services. Ooh. And it is, if you imagine what the Vikings might have listened to, ancient <laughs> instruments, that type of stuff. It is a lot of, uh, it's ancient stringed instruments, percussive instruments, wind instruments, flutes and things like that. And it sounds really, really cool. And as odd as it may sound, I've been really getting into a lot of those artists that do that kind of music. Mm. That looks really intriguing to me. Dark Era by Best Service. What about you? So what you're saying is, is you want to be a Viking. <laughs> I am very, very firmly planted in this century. So no, I would probably be killed rather quickly if I went back in time. So no, I, I'm, I'm going to stay here. Thank you very much. <laughs> gotcha. What about you? My pick this week is Mellow Fi by Arturia. And my understanding is Mellow Fi is actually free at the moment. Let's just get that right out of the way. So you best jump on it ASAP. Mellify is a tape saturation style plugin, and they claim it to be a vintage tape emulation that is based upon, of all things, a Mellotron. Ooh, Ooh nice. Yes. The thing about a Mellotron is that it's a very noisy instrument for the most part, so you're going to have to expect some noise, or at least you can dial in and out the amount of noise that you want this particular plugin to add. And it has all the typical things that tape plugins tend to have, which is tape flutter, tape wow, tape wear, and you can also choose from different types of head mechanics that it uses. So you can dial in the type of tape head and then you can then be either kind of subtle or very aggressive about the type of distortion and saturation you're going to get from this particular tape plugin. Sounds very I'm vibey. Going with the Mellow Fi this week. Very cool. Oh yeah. While we've got your attention, we ask that you go to InsideTheRecordingStudio.com and sign up for our email list. Doing so, we'll get you weekly reminders about our Tuesday tips, and we'll make sure that you don't miss any future episodes of the podcast. If you send us an email at goldstar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at InsideTheRecordingStudio.com with the word reverb... You'll get something cool back in your inbox. If you have a topic of suggestion for Chris and I to explain in a future episode, contact us via the contact page, and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode. With that, I'll say, see you next week. Thanks for listening, people. Have a good one, Jody. Bye.